Galatians 4, 4 through 7. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to jump straight into it. And uh, actually, we're going we're to start in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 4, and we'll read on to verse 7 there. Galatians 4, 1 through 7 is what we're reading, but Galatians 4, 4 through 7 is what we're looking at together this morning. It's here now, the reading of God's Word from the hand of Paul to the churches of Galatia, now on to us. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint the, the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit so that our hearts might be changed and affected by the truth of your word this morning so that we might be conformed more and more to the image of your son so that we might live more and more to your glory as your beloved children in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. And be seated. Well, years ago, I came across a story about a, a conversation that took place between a dad and his little adopted boy. And this family had adopted this little boy from Kazakhstan. And at the time of this conversation, this little boy was evidently at that stage and age wherein little boys start asking why about just about everything. And so one day as they were outside playing together, the father said to his son, I love you, buddy. Now, good dads will often and randomly tell their kids that they love them, and then this dad did that, and so his son asked him, well, why? And the father responded, well, because you're my son. And of course, the little boy asked, why? And the father writes about how this question struck him. He said, how do you answer that? Out of all the children in the world, why is he my son. And I started thinking, he says, about all the factors that had come together from the timing to the qualifications to the ups and downs and the days where my wife and I were wondering whether we could really even do this. He says, I felt tears well up, though my son didn't even know what was going on. He was probably sorry he asked. And he goes on to say, I, I, I looked at this precious little boy and I said, because we wanted you, buddy. And we came to get you. That's why you're my son. And really, that, that story is the story of every adopted child, isn't it? The parents wanted them, so they went through all of the, the ups and downs and the timing and qualifications, the days where they wondered whether really they could even do this. But at the core, the parent wanted and desired that child to have them as their very own, and so they went and they got them. And now what's so amazing about those words 
And that reality is that it, it actually echoes a reality that is at the core of the universe. The, the story of history is actually a story of adoption. It's a story in which God created us to be his children, to know him and to be known by him. But instead, we, we ran away to live as orphans and slaves. We rejected God's kindness. We rejected loving fellowship with him. And we instead sought lives of, of slavery. We, we sought to be orphans. And even in the midst of all this, we've always still longed to hear that, that divine voice of acceptance and affection and approval, and we've searched for it all our lives long. We, we search for it in the weak and worthless things of this world. We seek the satisfaction that can only be found in knowing God in everything but God. But God, in his enormous and extravagant grace, has made a way to give us what our hearts have so longed for, and his making of that way is what we're remembering in this season. We're continuing on in this Advent season now, when we look forward to the second Advent of Christ, as well as remember and celebrate his first. And what we're considering this morning is that in the first Advent of the Son, we also experience the Advent of our Sonship. That is to say, in the coming of the Son of God, He has secured our adoption so that we too might be sons of God. And that's the kind of big idea that we're working with this morning in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And there are three steps I'd like to take us on in, in this journey through this text this morning. The first step, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5, where we see the process of adoption. That, that is what, what God has done to secure our adoption. Next, in verse 7, we see the pleasure of our adoption. That that God wants us to have a felt and joyful experience of it by his spirit. And last in verse 7, we see the privilege of adoption, that we are heirs through God. So we see the process, the pleasure, and the privilege of adoption here. Now again, in this series, we're dropping into a book that we haven't been preaching through sequentially, right? And so I, I, I want to give you a bit of context here. The Apostle Paul is writing here to a group of churches in an area called Galatia. And of course, this, this area and these churches were introduced to Christ and his gospel through the Apostle Paul in the first place. But since the Apostle had, had planted the gospel here and planted these churches, a sly and sinister group, sometimes called the Judaizers, had come to these churches and they were propagating a false gospel. And we won't get, get into it too much, but suffice it to say, the Judaizers' message had been this, that the Galatians needed to be circumcised and conformed to all of the stipulations of the Old Covenant law in order to be justified in the sight of God. Now, as Pastor Dan helped us see last week, justification comes only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by any works that we might do. And in fact, the, the law was originally given, we see in Galatians and in Romans, it was originally given in the Old Covenant in order to show us that fact. It was given so that we would see the hopelessness of our justifying ourselves before God by anything we might do. And all so that we would instead be driven to Christ alone for our justification. Our justification, our being made right with God, is and can only be based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. All we must do is receive him and his righteousness through faith alone. That's the gospel. And so th this is a problem that the Apostle Paul must address. He, he's concerned for the Galatians. He's concerned for their, for their comfort, for their growth, for their assurance. He's concerned for their salvation. And so he writes to them, he's correcting them, he's inviting them, seeking to woo them back to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we come to our passage this morning, he continues this endeavor. 
Okay? And so the apostle tells the Galatians in, in verses 1 through 3 that if they seek justification through law and works, they're going back to a life of slavery and bondage that they've been rescued from. That's not what God wants for them. Rather, God has planned and purposed something so much better, so superior, so much more satisfying for them. He has planned and purposed their adoption as sons. And that's what we see in verses 4 through 7. Beginning in verses 4 and 5, we see the process of how God accomplished this adoption. We see what he did in order to secure it. And of course, if, if you've ever witnessed friends or loved ones going through the process of adoption, you'll know it's typically, it's a very costly process. It's, it's financially costly. And even more than that, welcoming a child into your home, it interrupts your entire world. It takes planning and sacrifice and laying aside your own prerogatives and, and so much more. It's costly. And just so, our God has paid a high cost for our adoption. The apostle writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, he said, at just the right time in human history, when all the conditions were just right according to God's providence, God did something scandalous. He sent forth his son. And of course, this is a reference to what we call the incarnation of the son of God. And notice here that, that Paul doesn't say that in the fullness of time, God made his son, or that his son was born. Of course, he was born, but it doesn't say that. It says that he sent his son, implying that the son of God existed prior to his coming. And this is showing us something essential that we need to understand about, about this, this Jesus of Nazareth. As biblical Christians, who eventually, uh, as biblical Christians, we, we understand Jesus to not merely be a human being who, who at some point became the Son of God by living a good life and earning that status, nor unlike our, our Jehovah's Witnesses neighbors who knock on your door from time to time when you're trying to do things and make dinner and watch TV, uh, we don't understand Jesus to, to be even a, a, a powerful angel who was created by God at some point. No, the one that God sent forth into the world is eternally the Son of God. We confess him as such in the Nicene Creed, don't we? We call him God of God. Light of light, very God of very God. And we say that he was begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. All that is being implied here by Paul when he says that the Son of God was not made, not born, but sent. He is God. And if that line communicates something of his divinity, the next line communicates to us something of his humanity. It says that he was born of woman. He became incarnate for this phrase, born of woman, was a, a common Jewish expression denoting a person's status as a human being. And this, and this Christ being truly God we see here is also truly man. He's both true God and true man. He condescended to us to become a human being and to add to his deity humanity being two natures in one person. He is simultaneously everything that God is in his divinity and at the same time, he is like us in every respect, yet without sin. He is also true man. But then what's more, Paul goes on to say that he was not just born as a man, but as a Jewish man. As a man, Paul says here, he was, he was born under the law. And of course, whenever the Bible usually talks about humanity being under the law, it, it assumes our, our condemnation under the law. Because, of course, we're, we're far more sinful and broken than we want to be. If the Galatians want to be under the law, that means their condemnation. 
because they don't and we don't obey God's law. We reject it. We rebel against God. We run from Him. We hate Him in and of ourselves. And so being under the law for us throughout Scripture implies our condemnation, but for Christ, because He is everything God intended humanity to be, because He is perfect man, flawless man, His being under the law means that the law is now fulfilled in Him. His being under the law means that in the first time in human history, God's will has been perfectly fulfilled in a human being. And yet, as Paul goes on to say, this perfect man took sin's penalty upon himself. That's what Paul is referring to in that word redeem here. He says, God sent forth a son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem means to, to recover something through payment, right? Typically, in Paul's time, it would refer to purchasing one out of slavery, in the canon of Scripture as a whole, we, we see the clearest example of this in the Exodus of the Old Testament, right? When God rescued his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. But listen, as, as great and wonderful as the Exodus was, it actually pales in comparison to the, the greater Exodus it foreshadowed. The Exodus and redemption that God would accomplish through his very own son is an Exodus and redemption from a slavery far worse than slavery in Egypt. This is an exodus and redemption from slavery to sin and guilt and death. And the way that he did it is through his cross. That was the payment. He fulfilled the law on our behalf, living as perfect humanity for us, and yet he died a cursed death, a sinner's death, a lawbreaker's death on the cross, thereby taking the payment for our sin upon himself, even though he didn't owe it, and then redeeming us as a result. You see, the Son of God was not only sent for us, but He was slain for us. But what's more is that He was slain for us so that He might share His sonship with us. Notice the next line, purpose clause. The Son of God was sent and slain so that we might receive adoption as sons. God intended through Christ to adopt us, his, his cross was the payment, our adoption was the goal, because, listen, God is not only interested in redeeming us from slavery to sin so that we might go on to live auto lives as, auto as autonomous orphans. Right? It's not like he wanted to forgive us so that we can live, he can have a whole lot of forgiven orphans wandering around the world, aimless in life. He not only wants to free us from condemnation so that we can just be okay with him. No, God redeemed us in Christ, not just so that we could be okay with God, but so that we would be beloved children to him. God has redeemed us in Christ so that he would be our father and so that we would be loved as his very own children. And last week in addressing the, the doctrine of justification, we, we spent much time talking and thinking about our salvation and, and in legal terms, and, and of God as a judge, right? And there's something right and fitting about that because justification, it, it takes us to a courtroom. It speaks about salvation in legal terms. And when speaking about justification, we, we do well to think of ourselves and of God as, as in something like a court context with God in a robe and with a gavel and us on trial. And the good news of our justification is that when we admit our guilt in God's courtroom, 
Jesus comes forward and says, they, they are guilty. But I've paid all their fines. All their crimes have been credited to my account. I took the punishment for it. But now all of my perfect righteousness as the one who fulfilled the law is credited to them. And at that point, God the Father declares his people righteous. That's, that's justification. And that's an astounding reality. That's an indescribable gift. But what's even more astounding is that when court ends, God the Father comes down off the bench with adoption papers. And we go from a legal reality to an intimately relational reality. And God says to you, in addition to your guilt being taken away and your sin atoned for, in addition to you being declared righteous, you're now my child. You're coming home with me. I, I absolutely adore you. Everything I have is yours. And also, you're going to live forever. That's adoption. That's what God has done for you. That's who he is to you now. That's who you are to him now. He is your father. You are his beloved child if you trust in Christ. And friends, that, that is the most scandalous, the most astounding, the most perplexing thing in all of reality. Eternity will not exhaust the marvels of this, guilt, of this gift that we sinners have become sons. That, that we who deserve eternity under the wrath of God now live under his fatherly smile instead. But then I wonder for some of us if this, if this doesn't actually immediately sound like good news. It is, whether we realize it or not. But I know that for some of us, when we start talking about fatherhood and sonship, there are significant wounds here. Many experts and scholars and psychologists in recent years have been extolling the, the vital importance of fatherhood, the unique contributions that fathers make in the lives of their children. In fact, by both pastoral experience and by reading much of this, I feel like I'm on good ground to say that there might not be one human being that makes a more vital impact on a person's life than their father. And because of the weightiness that this relationship carries, the, the capacity for wounds from that relationship is enormous. If we have absent or bad fathers, which is far too often the case, it, it creates gnawing wounds in our hearts, gaping holes. And, and, and this affects today it, the way many Christians approach this doctrine of adoption here and, and our relationship with God as Father. And one of the very common approaches to the subject is just to avoid it altogether. To just say in, in a world where family structures are falling apart, where, where people are often walking around with father wounds, it's best to avoid this, this biblical teaching about adoption and God as Father. And you know, if what the Bible teaches us about this doesn't immediately sound like good news to you because you grew up in a dad-deprived home, or in a home where your dad was there, but a poor excuse for a father? I am sorry. My heart breaks for you. It's not right. It's not fair. You shouldn't have had to experience that. Let me say this, for you and for all of us, 
Knowing God as Father is the answer to the hunger and ache and longing we all have deep down in our souls. And it's the way to healing for those of us who have been deeply wounded in these ways. Because listen, God is not a father like any earthly father. Even the best of earthly fathers are but a a shadow of the kind of father our God is. Dane Ortland hit the nail on the head when he wrote that. While some of us had great dads growing up, others of us were horribly mistreated or abandoned by them. Whatever the case, the the good in our earthly dads is but a faint pointer to the true goodness of our Heavenly Father, and the bad in our earthly dads is the photo negative of who our Heavenly Father is. He is the Father of whom every human father is a shadow. Understand, God, God is the perfect epitome of what a father should be and more. He is kind and patient. He is generous and magnanimous. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is strong. He is true. He's faithful. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will provide you with everything you truly need. He will protect you from everything you truly need and ultimately need protected from. He will never mistreat you, never abuse you, never abandon you. He will discipline you as your father, but he, he does it because he loves you. And he's trying to teach you how life works best. He is the kind of father of whom all the good in our earthly dads is but a faint pointer, and of whom all the bad in our earthly dads is in photo negative. He is everything you need in a father. And this, regardless of your experience, is precisely what you need because you were made to be fathered by God. It's the answer to the longing and aching in your soul. It's true healing for the wounds you've received. You need to know God as Father. And He's done everything needful for us to know Him as such in the process of adoption. Which brings us next to the pleasure of our adoption. And here we see that God has not only sent his son to accomplish our adoption, but he also sends the Holy Spirit to assure us of it. He sends the Spirit so that we might experience the pleasure of our being children of God. This is what the apostle goes on to write about, saying, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, based on our graciously given identity and status as sons, God also now sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts to confirm it to us. The Holy Spirit is sent to us as God's beloved children in order to assure us of our newly given status and identity as sons. The Spirit comes into our hearts to cry out in our hearts and to impress upon our hearts that we are children of God who know God as Abba and Father. John Stott sums it up very well when he writes of this verse saying, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son so that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. You see, God not only wanted to give you the status and identity of being a son through Christ's work, but by the spirit's presence, he wants to give you a felt sense of your identity and status as a son. He sends the Spirit so that 
we would be conscious and experientially aware of our sonship as the Spirit is crying out in our hearts. He sent the Spirit so that we would know in our spirits that we are not alone, that we are not abandoned, but that we have a Father who is there for us and present with us, always for us, that we belong to Him no matter what. And Paul kind of expounds on this in Romans 8, 15 to 16, when he writes, echoing our text, you have received the spirit of adoption, the sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then he goes on to expound on what that looks like. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, what he's saying here, what he's talking about here, are those, those moments in which the Holy Spirit preaches to your heart, wherein he testifies to your spirit that you are God's beloved child. Again, God sent his son to give us the status of sonship, and he sent the spirit to give us an experience of it, to bear witness to your spirit on an experiential level that you are God's beloved child. You might be picking up on this, and this might be one of the more controversial things I I believe and I might talk about up here, that contrary to maybe how some of us understand this verse, I don't think Paul is talking about the new birth here. I don't think he's talking about here, the moment of our conversion where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. Because notice here, he says, it's because we are sons that God sends the Spirit into our hearts. Not that he sends the Spirit into our hearts in order to make us sons. That's what he would say if he was talking about conversion, if he was talking about the new birth here, but that's not what he says. He says it's because we are sons that he sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And furthermore, I know that this verb translated as sent here is translated in the past tense, making it sound like it's talking about something that has already taken place in the past and doesn't take place in the present or the future. Like it, you know, like it could be talking about the new birth or our conversion when the Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. If it is only in the past tense, but if I could just get a little nerdy for a moment, the Greek verb translated as sent here is not in the past tense. The Greek verb is actually in what's called the aorist tense. And of course, if you're familiar with the English language, we don't have an aorist tense in the English language. You won't have heard of that in English. And so translators typically translate aorist tense verbs into the past tense. But it's not in the past tense, it's in the aorist tense. Now, what's the aorist tense? Well, a verb in the aorist tense is a verb without regard for past, present, or future. It's no respecter of time. And yet at the same time, it also communicates a sense of completion or certainty, like this is not an unsure thing. And now I'm, I'm trying to make this point here because I want you to see that the kind of sending of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here is not a one time, unrepeatable thing that took place at the moment of your conversion in the past, Christian. Rather, the sending of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here is a sending that continues to be available to us and that we ought to continue to seek after throughout the Christian life, right? The Holy Spirit is not only sent to us at the moment of our conversion. He is sent then, and he's sent then to dwell in us forever and ever, and he doesn't leave. And yet at the same time, there there are times in the Christian life wherein he's sent again, and in a way that we experience him and his work in a fuller, more conscious way than we do normally in the Christian life. Just for example, in the book of Acts, The Spirit is sent upon the church in Jerusalem in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, right? And he's he's sent there to dwell in those Christians forever without leaving, 
But then just two chapters later in Acts 4, the same church experiences being filled with the Spirit again in a powerful and potent way. In Acts 4.31 clearly states, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, you read that and you go, I thought they were already filled with the Spirit. They were, but they're filled with the Spirit again here. Right? Or another example, when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, he's writing to a people, you can read about it in Acts 19, who were already filled with the Spirit. They were already filled with the Spirit when they were converted. But what does he say in Ephesians 5.18? He tells those who have already received the, the Spirit to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's a sense in which we're, continued to pursue, we're, we're to continue to pursue the Spirit's presence and filling in our lives, even while He's always there dwelling in us as children of God. And just so here in Galatians 4.6, we're being invited to experience the sending of the Spirit in an ongoing manner. We're being invited to be filled with the Spirit in an ongoing manner, particularly as it pertains to his witness to us about our identity as sons of God. Paul is here talking about those sacred, special, joyful moments wherein you experience such assurance before God, such confidence, those moments in which you're experientially aware by the Spirit's grace of your belovedness before God, your status before Him, your sonship before Him, as the Spirit takes those precious truths and impresses them upon your heart in a particularly conscious and joyful and awe-inspiring and even irregular way. The way Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrated this verse, and the, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin before him was this, they said that the Christian life is almost like you know a, a, a father and a son walking down the road together. And they're walking hand in hand, and the child is the child of his father, and the father is the father of his child, and this is always firm and fixed and true, and the child knows that the father loves him, and he's happy about that. Perhaps he doesn't even doubt it. But Galatians 4, 6 is like if suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up and cuddles him in his arms and kisses him and embraces him and showers his love upon him and then puts him back down again and they go walking on their way. That's what it's like when the Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it's like when he bears witness to your spirit that you are a beloved son of God. And it's joyful and it's confidence-inspiring and it's glorious. And so I just want to ask you, do you know anything about that? Do you know what I'm talking about right now? By experience. If not, I would just encourage you this morning, would you seek God for this? I I, I know that there are some of us here this morning who have been walking through the Christian life, satisfied with, with merely intellectually assenting to Christian doctrine and going through the motions of of. Christian practice, but without much assurance, without experiencing God's nearness in a way that, that we're talking about this morning. And so if, if that's you, I would just encourage you, seek God for this kind of assurance and joy. Seek Him for this kind of, of, of the sending of the Spirit. You know, if you do, we're, we're, we're encouraged to. We're, we're told by Jesus in Luke 11 that that we can be confident in our asking that 
that our father is the kind of father who loves to give this kind of gift to his children. He says in, in Luke 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give, listen, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Would you seek God for this kind of witness of the Spirit in your life? For the Spirit of adoption being sent into your heart afresh, crying out within you, Abba, Father, bearing witness to your Spirit that you are beloved of God. God wants you to experience this reality. This is talked about here in the Bible. He wants you to be assured as his children. He wants you to experience the pleasure of your adoption. This brings us last to the privilege of adoption. Paul concludes this paragraph in Galatians by saying, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is, this is the concluding point of the paragraph. This is the point Paul is trying to make to the Galatians, that they're not, they're not living as sons here. They're not living as as who God declared them to be. They were living lives of legalism. They were seeking to depend on the law and their obedience to it for their acceptance and approval, which is what God has already given his people freely in Christ. And this is what legalism in Christianity is like. It's like trying to live as a slave in a house where you've already been declared to be a son. It's, it's, it's like being set free from prison and being brought home to God's household, but going back to your cell and draping all of your broken chains over yourself again, which is just foolish. Because the reason God sent the Son is to give us our full rights as God's beloved sons. I hope you realize that this is why Paul is exclusively using the word, sons, uh, the word son here instead of sons and daughters or children like he might elsewhere. Because daughters in the, the Greco-Roman world were, were not typically heirs. And typically it would, it would only be sons who were heirs and who therefore received full rights and inheritances from their fathers. And so Paul here is using the word son to talk about male and female Christians, keeping in step with just what he said in Galatians 3, where he says that there's, there's no male or female in Christ, but all are heirs, all are sons through him. So don't take offense, ladies, in the same way that we men... Rejoice in being a part of the bride of Christ, right? So Paul is saying here that, that you are sons of God because you're full heirs along with your brothers. That is to say, you've been given the highest privilege that a human being can possibly be given. In adoption, Christian, all of you, both male and female, rich and poor, regardless of race or ethnicity, all in Christ have been, have been given the highest possible privilege and status that a human being can have. Namely, you are sons and heirs of God. And I highly recommend reading J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It's a wonderful book, but even if you're not much of a reader, if you don't read the whole thing, I recommend reading his chapter on adoption in there. And there he writes this about the privilege of adoption. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. That is, that is to say, it's the highest privilege a human being can have, period. It's higher even than justification, he says. That justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. 
Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need justification more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers anything else. But that is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a legal idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Friends, we don't live in God's house as forgiven slaves. God did not orchestrate our salvation so that he would have a house filled with obedient slaves. He wanted sons, he wanted heirs, he wanted to give us the highest privilege of all. Realize the implications of this, Christian. This this changes everything. Think about what this means for prayer. This means that that prayer is, is not like a slave petitioning his master or even like a citizen in good standing petitioning his king. This means that prayer is a beloved child speaking to and being listened to and held by his father. Think about what this means for your sins. once heard someone say that the The gospel and legalism can be contrasted in this way. It's when you sin, legalism says, I've really messed up. I can't let my dad find out about this. And yet gospel Christianity says when you've sinned, I've really messed up. I've got to call my dad. Realize that when you sin, your father is waiting with arms open wide, ready to put you back together. He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He's actually running to you. And even before you can get the words of confession out of your mouth, he's kissing you and putting the best robe on you and he's throwing a party for your return. Think about what this means for your security in the Christian life. When God welcomes someone as his child, he he won't ever cast him out. Packer makes this point in comparing God to earthly fathers. He says the very concept of adoption is itself a proof and guarantee of the preservation of the saints. For only bad fathers throw their sons out of the family, even under provocation. God is not a bad father, but a good one. Think about what this means for your future and the final judgment. When you face God on the last day, you won't be facing him merely as judge Christian, but as father as a father who's given you full rights to everything he has and everything he owns. That's what a father gives to an heir, by the way. That's because of adoption. You can lay down your head on your pillow tonight and rest assured that you're good with God and you're going to be good with God and that when you die or Christ returns, when you stand before him, divine welcome is a certainty in Christ. All of this and more is available to us if we will only trust in Christ and receive it as a gift. 
If we only collapse into his arms by faith, God gives us every right as his own sons. He makes us heirs. So part of what I want to consider this morning is whether or not this is part of your experience, Christian. Do you live with this assurance, this assurance afforded to us in light of this doctrine? Again, God God wants you to experience your status and privilege of sonship before him. He wants you to have a sense of it. In measure now and in fullness in the age to come. He wants you to have a conscious awareness of your sonship. He wants you to know in your spirit that you are his beloved child. He wants you to know that you're royalty. That you're a son of the king. He wants you to walk in through life with your head held high with a sense of assurance and confidence and courage because of who your father is and who you are to him. Of course, we we need to remember that experience in the Christian life is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. So we can't base everything in the Christian life on our subjective experiences of assurance and comfort. We need to remember that the foundation of the Christian life is is the objective work of Christ, the objective promises of God. But still, we see here that God wants us to have a conscious experience of those realities. He wants us to have an experiential awareness of our status as children. So I ask again, are you experiencing this at some level? You know, sometimes you might not sense assurance in the Christian life all that much, and sometimes you might sense it more deeply and profoundly than other times, but I I want you to see here that you can grow in experiencing it as you grow in the Christian life. Your, Your level of assurance and confidence can be growing as you're growing throughout your Christian life, and 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 part of this is just us rightly pursuing the things of God throughout our life, like prayer and scripture and fellowship with other believers and regularly receiving the Lord's Supper and the like by coming to these means of grace with open and repentant hearts. But this begins with us at least knowing that assurance and confidence and an experiential awareness of your sonship in Christ is indeed available to you. And I know there are times in the Christian life where some of us, maybe most of us or all of us, Don't experience assurance almost at all. There are times in the Christian life wherein we don't feel it. There are times and moments and even seasons of the Christian life wherein we sometimes we feel abandoned or alone or anxious, where we feel afraid, guilty, ashamed. Perhaps we even feel lost or orphaned. Those, Those times and seasons come for all of us. We all feel that way at some point, at some level, and it seems like Maybe those times come for some of us more often than they do for others. But when they do come, what what do we do? When times come like that, we do well to fight, to, 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 to preach the truth to ourselves, to declare to ourselves the objective status and identity that we have as God's children on the basis of Christ. And so whether we simply want to grow in this awareness or we feel we lack it all together and desire, I'm calling us here, we need to fight. And again, I'd like to come back to this helpful resource by Packer in Knowing God, the chapter on adoption. In that chapter, Packer says that there are six things that the Christian should tell themselves every single day. And I do this, actually. I, I, every morning when I get up and, and pray and read my Bible, I actually begin the morning with telling myself these six things every day. And they've, they've helped me, and so I, I want to commend this to you. Six things to tell yourself every single day, and particularly in moments of darkness and difficulty. Here's what they are. 
God is my father. I am his child. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever. And every day is one day closer. You would do well to tell yourselves those truths every day. Write it down where you'll see it. Speak it over yourself. Preach it to your heart. And particularly when you feel alone or abandoned or anxious or afraid. Because listen, I've had enough pastoral experience at this point to know that there's a whole lot of negative self-talk that goes on in many of our lives and in our minds. I know that, that some of us, we beat ourselves up. We say horrendous things to ourselves. Things that would make you so angry if, if someone said them to a family member, a loved one. Some of us say horrendous things to ourselves. Things like, I'm an idiot. I'm a piece of garbage. I'm trash. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. Or we catastrophize, uh, catastrophize uh, uh, events in our lives and the world and tell ourselves things like, I'll, I'll never change. My life is headed nowhere. Everything is falling apart. Listen, the, the doctrine of adoption tells us that those kinds of things are not true. They're not what God has said about you. Rather, he has declared you to be his very own son. He has given you a new identity. He has told you that you have a future, a bright future, the brightest future even. And what he says about you is the truest thing about you. And so for some of us, we need to change the scripts of our self-talk. We need to change from those, those self-condemning, hopeless kinds of words to what God's word says about us in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this in his book on depression. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? And he goes on to advocate that, that we engage in biblical, gospel-centered, hope-filled, assurance-building self-talk because you see, in many ways, your self-talk frames the way you view reality. And so why not intentionally speak the truths of God's word to yourself? Why not let the gospel frame the way you see God and yourself in all of reality? Because what God says is true in ultimate reality. And what's more, what the doctrine of adoption shows us is that what God says about us is much kinder and gentler than any words we might say over ourselves. This is a great Puritan, John Flavel, who once wrote that, remember that this God in whose hands are all creatures is your father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. So change the, the, the negative self-talk to gospel, biblical self-talk, telling ourselves the truth of God's word every single day, God is my father and I'm his child. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever. Every day is one day closer. God wants you to know that you're his child. He wants you to know that you know. He wants you to not just possess the status of son before him. He wants you to experience this high privilege you've been given in Christ. 